welcome to another week of One of 200, the New Zealand Independent Politics and Media Podcast. You're here with hosts Philip, that's me, and Branko Marchitech is here as well. How are you doing, Branko? Good, good. How are you going, Philip? Yeah, good. I was just uh, saying a second ago that I think my my sound quality is going to be the worst because I'm in a, a beautiful villa with high high ceilings created according <laughs> to long dead standards of design, I suppose. And that's something we're going to talk about today with our guest, Jessamine Fraser, New Zealand registered architect, teaches at Unitech and generally interested in all things kind of design and planning. So welcome, Jessamine. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so we just wanted to talk to you about a kind of a whole host of things, I guess, because the media has been, I guess, honing in on this for years now as stuff's been kind of hitting the fan around the country, mostly Wellington and Auckland, but it's kind of a New Zealand-wide problem. Um, So maybe to contextualize it, you could kind of give us a bit of a history lesson on like the recent changes, because <laughs> so much has happened in the last uh, five, 10, 20 years, as far back as you want to go. But it seems like design's kind of in the news, which isn't a normal. Yeah. Well, it kind of is and it kind of isn't. So there's a couple of things that there's, well, there's a, there's a raft of uh, economic factors that have, have contributed to the current housing crisis that we're, we face. Um, but there's also one of the significant things is that in the 1990s, the state started selling off social housing, um, including the councils as well. Um, Auckland Council sold off most of their um, council housing in the late 90s and then the last of it in the 2000s. Um, housing New Zealand in the 2000s did buy some of those um, units, but not all of them. And the other thing that happened was in the sort of the 80s and the 90s, they slowed down and stopped building social housing. And one of the things about social housing is that that's the option for people who are on limited income or just haven't been able to, you know, get a mortgage or whatever to have somewhere decent to live. And particularly when, you know, formerly it used to be if you had a state house, that was your house for life. Uh, that was the case for my father's parents. You know, they had their house on Heafy Terrace for life. Um, and so you can then make it your own. You can look after the garden. You can choose your own curtains and all of that. With the drop-off um, of social housing construction, combined with um, the 1987 crash, combined with um, a number of factors, and planning does play into this, but, you know, there's a bunch of financial settings for why people started investing. I was reading just the other day an article about the 87 crash and how there was this, this, uh, New Zealand actually was worse affected in some ways by the 87 crash than a lot of other places. And one of the reasons why was because people had got very into going, right, I'm going to invest in the stock market. And then they lost everything. So people then went, stock market's too risky, going to invest in property. We also had a lot of people who had been earning big money in places like London coming home in the mid-late 90s and going, I used to flat in Ponsonby, and I know this because I grew up there and I was going to the open homes and um, just as a budding architecture student going, oh, what's going on? Um, And (laughs) 
Yeah, so houses were going for twice what they were on the market for because people were coming across with pounds when pounds was, you know, $3 to the pound and going, well, I can spend what I want, I can buy what I want. That really started pushing the prices in Ponsonby up. And then uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you started getting apartments and townhouses being built around Auckland. and then there were enough. People didn't want more of them, and so they stopped building them. <laughs> so it's not just planning constraints that holds up this sort of thing. And, and this is one of the reasons why the idea of housing abundance, we just get, enable the developers to build as much as they want, and then we'll have choice. They're not going to keep building once they're not making enough of a profit. profit. Even if they want to, the people who are investing in them, whose job is literally turn capital into more capital, aren't going to continue to doing it. So the answer really is looking at history and looking around the world. It's, it's, there's no one silver bullet, but one of the key answers is trying to get social housing up to 40%. That should be our goal. Um, in the current terms, we have the unitary plan in Auckland which when that was put in place, there was lobbying, particularly from wealthier, more educated, um, by that I mean more sort of professionally educated um, and more connected parts of town were able to say, well, you know, intensification on the ridges, but maybe not like down where the houses are. Uh, whereas where I am in Glen Eden, there wasn't any of that. It's all mixed housing urban you get a bit further away from the train station and it turns into mixed housing suburban you know it's it's not really no one's really looked at the area and considered well what works where um and so you do get this this great discrepancy between areas having lots of intensification happening and other areas that aren't and we do need more housing of um, different sizes, so different scales, so apartments and townhouses and so on in the inner areas. And in order to achieve that, the government has now come up with the MDRS zone, which they are going to impose on um, all of the tier one cities, which is Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch um, and Hamilton. And so then the whole city will have one medium density residential zone. And that has one set of settings. Those settings are not the same, just for clarification, they're not the same as the medium density zoning that we currently have under the unitary plan. They are more permissive. It's not the permissiveness that bothers me. It's some of the consequences that come along with that permissiveness um, and that we're not really thinking about what we want to achieve. And so this is, you said at the beginning that, we're talking a lot more about design and we are, but only in the urban realm. We're not talking about the design of houses. And I find it quite ironic in a way that we've got a housing crisis. We're talking about housing, but we're not talking about houses. <laughs> and if you try and say, well, actually, you know, for the livability of homes, of houses, sometimes people go, well, you're being a NIMBY, which I find a very strange proposition to say, Yes, we want density, but we want to do it well so that the spaces we create are livable. That doesn't make us nimbies. It just means that we care about our living environment. 
which is the same surely as caring about our urban environment right yeah because i feel like maybe five years ago or sort of around the unitary plan when that discussion was happening mm -hmm. um there was a real kind of drive from the um i guess the greater auckland kind of urbanist set um for like density done well was the like phrase that people were mm -hmm. saying right that's what yeah everyone was kind of saying and a lot of people get on board with that um yeah. but it's interesting that it just seems to be in the last couple of years that the done well part seems to have slipped from that vocabulary like um it's it's but what obviously what has done well mean is an important question that we should get onto soon yes. and what is livability and that kind of stuff um but yeah there have to be standards right you can't that's mm. um, it's a very libertarian solution to just say remove all the remove all the regulations um we sure hope these uh developers build what we want because that would allow us to afford it and then as you as you say that comes up against the turning capital into more capital drive so i mean if they're not making a profit why are they continuing to build excessive housing um yeah but it's interesting that that kind of lexicon's changed um recently it seems like the main kind of people pushing the idea of uh, maximum density urbanism focusing on that kind of central Auckland central Wellington um, conversations which they always do um, aren't really talking about the interior design as you're saying and maybe that maybe that sort of comes up to something else I've seen you talk about which is about like the the difference between the public realm and the private realm yes. this kind of um, liberal or maybe post-liberal kind of conception of this artificial I would say artificial they would probably say um, innate division between like what is public space and what is private space and what right does the community have to impinge on individual liberties in that kind of conversation. Yeah, I think there is a bit of that. There's also um, a lot of this conversation is led by, um, by planners who might have a, you know, they might've done a planning degree or they might've done a geography degree. They haven't done any kind of design degree. Um, then you do have um, in, in the urban design sphere, you have people who have come from that background into being an urban designer. And you have people who have come from a architecture school background into being an urban designer. And there is a little bit of a difference in terms of how we have, a, how my experience in terms of having a conversation with an urban designer who has a background in architecture versus an urban designer who doesn't. Because to be perfectly fair to them, they don't know how houses work. So they're like, well, I, I don't know about that, so I don't want to talk about it. And let's leave it to the people who do know how to do it. So we'll take it out of planning. We just don't, don't want it in planning because we don't know how we don't know about it. And, and that seems a fair proposition. The problem is that the planning, the planning that we set up sets up certain expectations and certain conditions for the design that you're then doing on the site. And that can be good or not. So one of the things is the, um, you know, the outlook from a living room is four metres wide by six metres deep, or has been. It's going to be four metres wide by four metres deep now, which I'll come back on to why that's a problem. But the four metres wide then sets the, the, the size of a townhouse. So they can... They can't go any less than four meters wide. So they go to four meters wide, center to line to center line of intertenancy walls. And then they pack on as many townhouses as they can. Now, the thing about that four meters wide is 
20 years ago when we were doing units that were four metres wide, we had intertenancy walls that are 150 or 200 mil thick. They're now getting to 300 and even 350. So you're still doing the same centre to centre, but you're just making the interior space that bit narrower each time, you know, as we improve our building standards. <laughs> and once you get down to a certain point, so I was looking at some plans just the other day, and you've got 3.7 between the intertenancy walls. You've then got a stair on one side, which is 900 plus 100 wall plus its lining. So you end up with 2,650 from the intertenancy wall to the stair wall. You come in the front door and walk past the kitchen. So now the kitchen is 1,700 wide. <laughs> but that's starting to get really small. And the thing that really struck me about this is I worked out the square meterage of that downstairs space of this townhouse. And it was basically the same as you guys can see the space behind me, which is more of a square room. That's about five and a half by four and a half roughly. So they're around about the same size. My space works pretty well. I can get eight people around that dining table with no, nobody feeling like they're crammed or jammed up against the wall or the kitchen bench or anything. It's the same area, but it works better. So it's not that we have to make things bigger necessarily, it's just how we design them. And I, I think there's this real, there, there is what you, you mentioned about the neoliberal um, kind of private property, you should be able to do what you want. There's also this idea that if we achieve higher housing abundance, then people will be able to choose. And then to quote Scott Caldwell from the Coalition for More Homes, we will get a blossoming of design, which is a little naive. Um, to be honest, uh, we should be able to say, this is what we want, and you need to provide it. And the example that I would give for that, actually, is the, um, the Great North Road Ridge, is it Great North Road as it goes through Greyland, that little bit of ridge there. They first started putting apartments up there 20 years ago. We're still waiting for it to be fully populated with, town, with apartments. It's a prime place, close to to the city, it's a main road, it's got buses on, that is exactly where we should be putting apartment buildings. It's mixed use, they should have shops or cafes on the ground floor and then apartments above. We're still getting showrooms going in, a single level of showroom and a single level of offices above instead of apartments. They should be being told, no, in this area, you have to have apartments. Buildings are a minimum of four stories high um, and then you can go up to six or seven um, under the UPS, which was released by the government earlier in the year. Uh, but that you actually, you can't say, well, this is a commercial building and the building next door is residential and that's what makes the area mixed use. Developers like to specialise. They like to be, I do construction, I, I, do, um, I do apartments or I do townhouses or I do single houses or I do commercial. They don't really want to mix up too much. And we need to be able to say to them, actually, no, in this location, you're building, not just the area, but your building is mixed use. And if you extend that into oh, an area like around me in terms of the, um, the pattern of development here, we have, because this, this area was designed for cars, for people to drive around by cars. It's not particularly pedestrian friendly. So there's some things in terms of pedestrian friendly urban design, urban realm and cycling and so on that really need to be up, you know, improved in, in the, the outer suburbs as well. But 
you know, we've got these long, deep sites. And then in behind, so this site that um, I'm on is 65 metres deep. There's a, couple, there's a couple of other houses here. And then there is two, between me and the far, the, the far site on the far road, there are two more very large um, rare sites that are about, you know, 50 metres by 50 metres kind of thing. You know, they're big sites, but they're in behind. They've got an over 50 metre driveway to get down there. If that is developed on its own, you know, you've got considerations in terms of people walking down that driveway in the dark. So we need to be able to look at specific areas and go, this is the outcome we want here. Uh, this is a family area largely, so we want family houses, but it's not only, so we also want a mix of, but the mix that we want here might be different than the mix that we want on, for example, Great North Road and Great Lynn. So we need to actually be able to say, these are the outcomes we're looking for. Go ahead and, and do it, but these are the outcomes we're looking for. And I think that's one of the things that's really missing in this. It's a reluctance to tell developers what to do. Can you give us a sense of what this means in, in concrete terms for, you know, the outcomes of people's social well-being? You know, people that have to live here, whether it's families or, or you know, just, just single individuals, what does it actually mean uh, for them and uh, their well-being uh, that, you know, the design is not really, uh, you know, something incorporated in, in, into the, the, the planning stage? So there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of things. So if we talk about sunlight, it's one of the things that I've been talking about. I've been talking about the commodification of sunlight because I'm not worried that inner suburbs like Ponsonby and so on are going to end up with townhouses or apartments that don't get sun because they're wealthy areas. The design that gets done there will probably be made to accommodate that or ameliorate it in some way. I'm concerned about what's already happening in my neighbourhood. Um, there's 18 townhouses being crammed onto one small site down the road here. You know, they're really, they're like, mm. and then opposite the road you have where, because they've got as of right three houses per site already here, they just put three standalone houses on a site with minimal distance between them and minimal outdoor yard, but they just get bulky, right? So you just, you're not actually really getting more usable space because bigger doesn't necessarily mean more usable. I've seen plans where things are quite big, but they're not very usable. So people think, well, I need a bigger house. <laughs> you just keep getting this bigger and bigger house. And I was like, well, no, you actually just need it more sensibly planned. But lack of sunlight has effects on our daily biorhythms, which has effects on our mood um, our mental well-being and our physical well-being. One of the examples I've been using is there's actually quite a bit of research internationally that shows that your stay in hospital, all other things taken into account and controlled for. So whether you're there for surgery or um, illness or um, you've been in an accident or whatever and whatever your pre-existing health concerns are, your stay in hospital is shorter if you're in a room that gets sunlight and has outlook to green space. So we, we know we can demonstrate that being able to see green space and being able to get sunshine and, and, and have that sense of the day passing has tangible effects on our physical and mental well-being. And 
we keep getting told that if we try and talk about this and try and say how do we how do we ensure that whilst we do density we still maintain these things for people because I totally acknowledge there are many places people are living already that don't have those things that's not good enough and we need to fix that we don't fix it by going oh well it's already like that so let's just keep doing it um and <laughs> so we need to be able to, to to have a conversation about how these things influence our mental and physical well-being but it's also the space that you're living in if you've got particularly if you've got you know leggy teenagers like my sister's boys and and you're in a you know you're in this small space and where do they fit right and so everybody's sort of kind of rubbing up against each other and tripping up against each other there's never enough storage and it all just the, the 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 basic tensions in your life and just always just a little bit higher than they need to be mm. and we know well, that stress impacts us so correct me if i'm wrong but it also seems to me like this is even more critical now that this this trend of you know that, that that we thought maybe it was just going to be temporary during a pandemic of, of working from home it seems like it's there's a really concerned shift this is going to be for better or worse and, and i think there are advantages to disadvantages of both but it does seem like more and more people will be working from home uh in the future at least for part of the time and so surely this is an even more important thing to to, to have in consideration now that people's workplaces are literally the places that they that they live yeah it really is um you know so even just just on on the really basic thing so that consideration of outlook that i mentioned before um anyone who's who's gone to the optometrist um if a couple of times let alone as many times as i end up going uh will know that optometrists tell you you need to be able to rest your eyes into the distance they're talking about 20 meters right and all we're trying to get is six meters <laughs> um so you know, again, there are tangible effects from how we do densification. But in terms of being able to work from home and having space that you can do that, uh, I, as I said, we said before, I, I teach and I've really noticed the detrimental impact on some of our students of the fact that they are essentially sharing the dining table doing their work with their um, younger siblings who are still at school, with their mum who's trying to work. They're also all trying to share broadband and they probably don't have the highest, you know, the most expensive broadband. So, you know, it's, and it really gets in the way of their ability to learn at a distance. So one of the things that I noticed over the, over the, over my career is social housing providers and you know state housing providers like um when i was doing work for them it was the um, housing new zealand corporation now it's kind aura they have certain minimum standards that they require they have things like so kind aura has things like you have to have space a quiet place other than the dining room table for a desk for a student to do their study and their homework it's a small thing, it doesn't take up a lot of space, but it's an additional requirement. And I've, I've really noticed that 
social housing providers, state housing providers require something better than the people who are providing first-time buyers you know, for developer, development. To the point where one of the projects I worked on in Scotland, the uh, developer had been told as part of their planning consent they would need to provide a certain percentage of units for um, for social housing for one of the, the housing local housing providers. They decided they were going to build all these wee houses and then they were going to build this block of one and two bedroom apartments and that was going to be the social housing provision. When they sat down, so it had all been designed and planned out, they sat down with the housing provider who went, these aren't up to standard, we want these, and they chose all the best houses on the site. Which, you know, I thought, yay, win for us. Um, I don't think the developer thought that. <laughs> and it, it just really struck me that there is this real discrepancy between the minimum standards for social housing or um, public housing and the minimum standards for development-led stuff, which then, of course, leads to those people, I bought my house and it's not as good as the Housing New Zealand house next door. That's not fair. They're getting too much. It's not good enough. We need to be harder on beneficiaries. They're probably gang members, blah, blah. You get all that bullshit, right? So if we just said, actually, you know, you all have to meet the same minimum standard because there's good reasons behind these minimum standards. Um, but the, the fear is that if we tell developers to do that, then instead of 18 houses down the road, they might get 12 or 15, you know, and, well, but we need more houses. So we can't stop developers building as many houses as possible. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Uh, I think I think uh, along with your your earlier answer uh, to the, the I think the folly of when you have a, a problem like this uh, it, it's such a massive massive issue that that really bleeds into so many other other matters uh, in, in New Zealand society and politics uh, to have to rely on private interests to do this thing you know we had this uh, this economist Michael Hudson we spoke to a, a, a few episodes ago and he made this point that you know look an economy is going to be planned by someone no matter what. And you yeah. can have it be planned by the government and an uh, entity that is at least uh, somewhat responsive to the public and that you have some sort of control over and, and check over. Or it can be by private interests, whether that's finance, banks, developers, you know. But, but that, to me, that's, that's what I've gotten from a lot of this. It's just, you know, this is such an intractable problem that to just leave this to... Private developers who obviously they, they think about their bottom line first and foremost, it's going to cause distortions that rather than fixing the problem might even make it worse down the road. I, I do think it will make the problem worse down the road. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, uh, uh, you know, a lot of urbanists um, will, you know, the, the urbanist Twitter and so on, and they, they'll show photos of developments that they like overseas. And a lot of them, contemporary ones, particularly from places like Denmark, they've been master planned, right? The, the, the city council stepped in and went, right, we, we want this area to be redeveloped and intensified. So we're going to master plan it. And then these bits are going to be social housing. These sites can be sold off individually. This developer's going to do this chunk. And then you get this real mix of um, affordable housing, social housing, and actually some quite high-end stuff, all in the same area, 
designed to certain, I'm thinking in particular of um, the Borneo Wars development, which I often cite, um, which has, they set up a kind of a, you know, you have to build to the street front, you have to have an interior courtyard, you have to go up to a certain height, you have to have a roof garden. So within those boundaries, you could do a whole lot of different things. And some people went, well, I'll have a mesh screen that goes up the full height at my front, but then I'll actually create space behind that rather than having my house straight on the front. So there are a number of different responses within that framework. And when you're just walking around the public realm, unless you're really consciously looking, you're probably not going to go, that's the social housing, you know? And that was, whole, that was a whole master planned area. And that's something that we're very, very reticent to do here. And I think, you know, Great North Road is one of as the space that I mentioned before. That's a place that we really should have master planned and said, this is what we're doing. Um, sorry, car yards. And another one that I've, I've been thinking about a lot lately is Rosebank Road, which, yeah, there's a lot of land there that's, that's you know, there's these big uh, office buildings or, well, two-story, but they're big in plan, um, you know, offices or showrooms or factory spaces, light industrial, um, and they've got a lot of car parking around them as well and big yards and then nothing much happening behind them all the way down to the water's edge. And you look at that and you think, well, we could keep those uses at the kind of the ground levels and then have apartments above, townhouses and behind. We could do this, but we have to plan it. We have to tell people this is what we want to happen. Otherwise, it's just, you know, we'll get bits of housing popping up next to, you know, various industries and then complaining about those industries making noises or smells and then the industries go, well, we were here first and it all turns into kind of a mess. And having that planned approach is a really important one. But the other one that I think that we really, I said before about trying to get to 40% public housing, and I think we really should be aiming to have 40% public housing, 40, 30 to 40% um, you know, papakainga, co-housing, community housing, and then only 20 to 30% being your commercial housing. So is that is that of new builds? Uh, well, certainly of new builds, but we should be working towards that being across the board, which would mean, in addition to the new builds, that the government and all the council should be starting to buy up existing properties that's because that's that's a huge project like what what percentage of public housing are we at at the moment uh, nowhere near that no it would be enormous right <laughs> it would be yeah. vast tracts of land but where where we see um where we see patterns like that in other places um other countries um austria is one where where they have in in some of their cities they have 40% public housing. And that public housing then isn't only for people who are on the benefit or who, you know, it, you have public servants, you have school teachers, you have young professionals, and they go, great, this is my house. Um, I don't have to worry about maintenance and I, I live here. And um, and the hot, this, one of the things is that the scheme then continues to work because there isn't the same pressure to kind of 
pull it down. Um, I was reading recently about the massive um, social, well, public housing. This is why I use public housing rather than social housing. The massive public housing that they started in the UK post-war. So they'd had, you know, large areas of their cities bombed out um, in England. And they took that opportunity to also look at a lot of the remaining Victorian slums, um, and they really were slums, um, because they had cholera and stuff running right through. And they went, right, we're gonna we're gonna clean this all up and we're gonna have we're gonna build new housing, housing for everyone, public housing. A few years later, it got kind of filtered down to being just social housing provision. And as soon as that happened, the funding for it dropped, the maintenance didn't continue, and you start getting social problems starting to happen in those spaces. Um, because if you treat people like shit by not maintaining where they live, um, by letting the lifts constantly break down, the plumbing break, then, yeah, they, they feel angry at society for treating them like this. Uh, and or they turn to drugs because they feel demoralized and, and you get you get social problems. We know this. And it's not because we're putting all the poor people into one place. It's because we're treating the poor people badly. <laughs> so we uh, we talked a little bit about ensuring livability. So, you know, let's say we, we give you the, the fantasy of, of being able to design your kind of dream <laughs> uh, urban space, because, you know, we don't think people think about urban living and you know I, I certainly have this idea even though I, I'm in an apartment right now you know we tend to think of things you know it's a small space that's cramped maybe maybe not that much sunlight maybe there isn't that much interaction with the outdoors all these things but is that how these spaces have to be designed or is there actually many different possibilities that we can imagine uh you know uh, housing to uh, high density housing to, to look like what would you want your ideal kind of uh, living space of this sort to, to look like if you if you could do it so there's a couple of things to there's um there's a couple of mechanisms we can bring into that but the first thing i want to say is density isn't a specific typology so the classic um social housing tower from the uk sitting in a bit of parkland it's about the same density as you'd get if you covered that parkland with townhouses. So it's not high density because it's a tall tower. Um, if you have tall towers all next to each other, <laughs> then they're high, then you're getting into high density. Um, we can have a single level that's still reasonably mid-density because they're small and they're compact. Um, one of the ones that's been was being talked about on Twitter the other day actually was the... Um, the bungalow court of California, where you have these little one-story, sometimes you know, with a bit of a loft space in the in the in the roof zone, so sort of one and a half story um, houses, each one quite compact, sitting next to each other with a little shared surface paved lane and pots and things, and it's and it, they're little compact courts, and that's actually a model that I think that we could introduce here because one of the things we need to bear in mind is. People want different things. People need different things. And we can't just provide one way of living for everyone. So having, um, if we did take the Coalition for More Homes um, idea of um, perimeter block housing, and we went, right, we're going to have, you know, 
either townhouses or or you know because you would get depending on the width of your site you get three or four townhouses that are four or five bedrooms so you might do that in some areas or you might go well we're going to build a flat of two and three bedroom apartments or one and two bedroom apartments depending on your location depending on your site then behind that you're going to want to have some green space obviously and you're going to want to have uh you might want to have like a some muse housing you know little row of townhouses or something treat it like a the old style of muse that might be how we deal with some of these really long deep sites because otherwise you're going to have a perimeter block and then you've got nothing happening behind it um which you know lovely um you know on on this site it's 15 meters wide you can have three five meter wide townhouses each with a 15 by six by 50 meter deep garden like you know that sounds lovely i'd be quite happy with that personally i don't think it's the most efficient use of space um and then maybe you know for some of those rare sites that don't have too long a driveway you maybe that's where you might look at doing the bungalow court model um so that we start to get a a, a difference in pattern because one of the things is is that you know when you go all tall up beside each other you start blocking each other's light. Whereas if you've got one that's tall and then around it, there's lots of stuff that's low, then there's more light generally for everyone. So you're kind of starting to create a bit of a pattern. Because um, one of the reasons they had those tall towers was so that everybody got light and air and outlook and sunshine. But <laughs> the way we do it now in the inner city is we just pack them in next to each other. And there's no consideration of whether they're all getting sun or whatever. And you might be, you know, looking across an alleyway effectively. Um, Eastern European states, you know, we look at it and we think, oh, that's a bit grim, these great big long slabs. But they were always orientated to the south or to the east or the west. So everyone was getting sun. And, you know, they might have been fairly grim on the outside and they were pretty compact on the inside, but they worked pretty well. So we still actually, you know, there are books of plans and apartment plans and things you can refer back to. We were telling students to go and look at them instead of trying to make it up out of their own heads. And, you know, those apartment plans that they used in those Eastern European blocks often feature because they worked. But if you've got, if you're on the south side and a few metres away, there's another building that's just as tall. Well, now you're, in, you're basically in a canyon. And, and that's not what we're talking about with medium density, but it does say that, you know, different housing typologies have different outcomes. So one of the rules that's being talked about um, internationally as a, hey, guys, here's something that maybe we should be aiming for in our cities, especially with climate change, is the 330-300 rule. So from every dwelling, you should be able to see three mature trees. They don't have to be on your property, but you can see them. Um, and from every dwelling, it should be a maximum of 300 metres to a public open space. You know, pocket park doesn't have to be big. And then the 30 is 30% um, tree cover in every neighbourhood. Um, Auckland's well below that, particularly out south. Uh, you know, there are places that are under 10% tree cover. So we've got a lot uh, of tree planting to do. And 
one of the things that I'm concerned about with a lot of the narrative around intensification is, oh, but you can put trees in the street and look, we just get the housing up and then we'll deal with where the trees go. And I'm looking at Paris, which is, of course, one of the cities I like to cite as, look, isn't it beautiful? We all love Paris because we could be like Paris. Paris has currently gone, yeah, we're having heat, we're, we're overheating in summer, which is getting worse with climate change. Plus, we've got biodiversity crisis and bees and so on, right? So we need to increase our tree cover in Paris. And they are trying to find places to squeeze trees in. You know, they're taking out car parks, uh, you know, on the side of the road. They're going, well, this, we're going to have half the number of car parks on the side of the road and half of them we're going to make into places we can plant trees. Now, I think this is great. I'm not saying don't do that, but it speaks to, they've basically looked at the aerial photo of Inner Paris and gone, we've got these tiny courtyards behind the apartments and you can't really put a tree in that. So there's nowhere to put trees except on the street. And I think we should we should be learning from that and going, hey, while we're doing our, our mid-density, while we're increasing density, we should be making sure that we're including trees in that proposition, trees and green space. Otherwise, we'll just be trying to fit them in later and it doesn't work. Yeah, so these like features of, I guess, the good life, like tree cover, um, access to public green space, uh, sunlight, stuff like this. Um, I guess that sort of comes down to like, how do you know what people want? Like, as you say, people want different things, right? Um, and yeah. I guess the um, uh, density, pro-density kind of argument is um, let, let, develop, like, let the market sort it out, right? Let developers build stuff that they think will make a bunch of money, meaning ideally they provide more houses. Mm -hmm. And then that gives purchases the ability to pick different places, ideally. So I guess it's like, who should be making those decisions, right? Should it be based um, on how much you're willing to pay for things? It's like commodification of those um, amenities and features of the good life, I guess. And then maybe, I guess, the, the urbanists more on the left would say, well, we need to bring up the basic standard of living by you know, having a stronger kind of um, public support network or a kind of minimum income or something like this to bring up that and then use the market to filter those decisions i guess place you know give people options in their in their neighborhoods where they can live um because otherwise the more planned like the master planning that you're talking about like who would make those decisions practically um would that be like an extension of the council or would that be like a central government arm how, how does this work overseas so usually um that master planning process uh would go through a number of public consultations but it would be being led by, so there would be um, an architecture firm and or an urban design firm working together to come up with the master plan. Then different architectural firms with various developers or state providers or so on would come in and do bits of it. Um, different areas will have more or less public consultation. I do believe that we need much more public consultation, much more public involvement. Um, I was reading about, um, and I want to know, I want to learn more about it, a little bit more specific, but Seattle, when they wanted to increase density in the inner areas, and they got a lot of pushback, 
And instead of just going, well, okay, we won't do anything or going, well, you're just going to have to lump it. They went to the communities and they said, okay, let's talk about this. What do you want to see in your area? And they came up with a solution that was going to get the desired density, but was also going to keep communities happy. And I think that's something that we don't do very, we don't do at all really. And I, you know, I look at local boards and I think we've got a real missed opportunity here in Auckland. We've got the local boards, but they're not funded, resourced to be able to do that kind of engagement with their communities. And they should be the point at which they go, right, okay, hey guys, we're going to have a couple of weekends where we'll all come together and we're going to talk about what's going to happen in the Glen Eden Centre, for example. What do we want to see happen here? What do you guys think we need? Do you think we need more offices or do you think we need some workshops? What kind of housing do you think we need? And, and undertaking that kind of engagement with the people who are going to be living and working in the space. But there are some things that we can make pretty good assumptions on by looking at how do people live around the world? If you remove professionals and government and developers and so on from it and just leave people to build their own cities, which is what's happened over hundreds of years, um, how do they do it? <laughs> and um, and what are the outcomes from that? And there's one of the, and then even if you just look at Auckland and you go overall, where are the more expensive areas? They're the ones that have trees, guys, you know? So it, we talk about the leafy suburbs and then when we say, hey, obviously therefore everyone kind of likes trees and wants to be around trees, we go, no, no. That's not true. We don't need to have trees for everyone. Which I kind of think, well, hang on. On the one hand, you're you're bagging people for trying to protect the leafy suburbs <laughs> as some kind of elitist position. And then on the other hand, you're saying people don't need trees. Uh, and yeah, I just, we, uh, one of my other loves and interests is human evolution. So I, I do tend to refer to it a bit. And we're primates. We grew up in trees and then we kind of migrated to the savannah, but a bit on the edge between the, the forest and the and the open plains of the savannas. So, you know, we like being around trees. It makes us feel good. And we like to have something protective at our back and be able to look out and see stuff. Mm. And that's when we tend to be happy. That's why people like to be up on a hill and looking out or being by water or something where they can see out. There are certain things that tend to crop up and you see it You see it in landscape art across different cultures as well, these same sort of patterns, you know, a, a, a plain with a few trees in it and some water and you're at a high point and you're looking out. These are, these are themes that crop up over and over again. Mm. So I think we can make some certain assumptions about the kinds of things that people like. Of course, different cultures, different families, different stages of life, people want and need different things. But the idea that you would want outlook, the idea that you want sun, the idea that you want green space and trees is, I think, fairly fundamental. It's certainly a funny argument to make in the context of New Zealand where the, our self-conception as a, as a country is that we love the outdoors, we love nature you know, 100% pure, clean and green and everything. And it's, well, it, as long as it's not outside my apartment. Uh, <laughs> I like that stuff if it's shunted off 
somewhere I can drive to it. Uh, if it's outside uh, my window, no, I don't want to see it. Um, uh, you, you brought up climate change. I'm glad you did because I want to ask you, okay, so assuming that we do this right, obviously, you know, we can raise people's well-being. We can give people a, a much better form of living. Uh, we, can, we can obviously solve this, this horrible housing crisis that the country's mired in. But is it also an opportunity to, um, to, to, to mitigate or even to, to uh, prevent some of the uh, terrible impacts of, of climate change, which is, of course, this massive issue that, that we're sort of slowly coming around to doing something about? Does this provide an opportunity to do something about that? Well, if, if people can walk to work instead of drive to work, then absolutely, if they can cycle. Um, but this is one of the problems with putting a blanket mid-density across everywhere. So here in Glen Eden, yes, we have a train station. It goes to the central city. <laughs> um, people don't only work in the central city. They work all over the place. Um, or they have family in all sorts of places. Even driving from Glen Eden, you know, it takes 15, 20 minutes to get to a point where you can then get to other parts of the city, you know, get, whether you get into the motorway or you've got to get through New Lynn. Once you get to New Lynn, it's, you know, there's, there's main roads out. But Glen Eden is a sort of weird little pocket. And yet we've actually got quite a lot of intensification happening here. And every unit that goes in here needs to have somewhere to park a car because you can't really live in Glen Eden without a car. Um, I used to be a pedestrian. I didn't get my driver's license until, you know, well, my restricted in my late 20s. And then I went overseas for a few years. I came back in my mid-30s and that's when I got my full license. So I, my preference has always been to walk to the places I go. I would walk 45 minutes to work by preference. Um, but you, I can't live in Glen Eden without a car because I can't get anywhere without it taking half of my day. So um, I think if we are serious about using intensification to make walkable cities, then we need to do one of two things. We either um, say we're only going to intensify around places that are already walkable, or we're going to look at a place like Glen Eden and go, right, what do we need to do to make this a genuinely walkable, cyclable area? Which means, one of the things that that means is it means taking that Glen Eden centre of shops and, um, and making more opportunities for different kinds of work bases there. But if you start talking about that, then people think that you're trying to say that, um, that we should be de decentralising from, which I actually, I, I do think we should be decentralising from the CBD, um, the idea that everyone's got to drive into the inner area um, to work or catch a bus into the inner area is just, I, it's, you know, it's kind of nonsense. We should have lots of little centres that, that people live and work around. Um, but yeah, so that, that becomes this sort of sense that you're saying, well, in order to have intensification in a place like Glen Eden, we need to provide more work opportunities here. So obviously I must be speaking against intensification in Ponsonby. And I'm not. <laughs> I think part of the problem here is I'm not particularly interested in Ponsonby. I find it very difficult to get excited about intensification in Ponsonby when I'm fairly confident that it's mostly going to be luxury housing, right? It, I'm, I'm not anti it, I'm just not 
particularly excited by it. Um, I grew up in Ponsonby. I used to love Ponsonby. Now it's very beige and gold. You know, it's not a particular, I don't know why everyone's so obsessed with living in Ponsonby, but that's just me. Um, but we need to give people places to work near where they live in order for that effect on the public transport effect and the walking effect to have any real tangible benefits in terms of climate change. The other thing we do need to take into account is that building new, we can increase the performance standards so that the houses are less energy intensive, but construction itself is really energy intensive. So there's some balances that we have to play here. And it's really, you know, balancing up those carbon uses and energy uses, it's actually really complex. And I don't think anyone's managed to do it 100%, not yet. So is that an argument against intensification? No, it's not. Um, I do think we need to be aware that when we're undertaking a massive program of intensification is the goal. Um, I don't know that it's actually going to happen, but it's the goal. Auckland already has over 50% of the waste generated in Auckland is construction waste. So if we're going to be building more and we're going to be demolishing more, then we need to know what we're going to do with those materials rather than just putting them in a dump. So there's a lot of logistics that we really need to get on top of if we're truly making this a sustainable move. But, but again, I guess, uh, I was just going to say, I mean, again, that that uh, relies on the idea that there is some sort of relatively central planning going on to, to account for all these things rather than just sort of handing it off to, to a third party and going, okay, hope you hope you do this okay. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things. I think they, there's a sort of Auckland Council should um, should solve the problem of waste, but they shouldn't get involved in telling developers what to do. So there's this kind of make the, the councils deal with the difficult bits, but not have any say on the outcomes. And it seems... Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I do think we just need to get involved and say, okay, yeah, you can, hey, developers, you can have a certain percentage of this, but we're also, we're going to make a whole lot of public housing while we do this, but you're going to do it the way we want it. You're going to do where we want it and how we want it. Um, because otherwise it's just going to end up being, you just end up with a hodgepodge and just flipping back to the um, the climate change question for a minute, there's this idea that we can not worry about the orientation of things, of, of dwellings, because even if they're facing south, if they're passive house rated, then they will be warm and dry. And that's true, but when we know that we can design a place so that it's warm and dry because of its siting and its location. And then, hey, yeah, also include some of the passive house technology and, and, and specifications and so on, because why not? Um, then you're starting from a better position. You know, starting from the idea that we should have winter sun, but summer shading, that we need shelter from the rain, that we need to be able to open our doors up and not have the rain come in. You know, there's a reason why 
places like Auckland have verandas traditionally, and yet they're disappearing. We don't do verandas anymore. We don't do verandas on, um, on new shopping areas even. And we definitely don't do them on new housing. And it, it's, we do need to, if we really want to address climate change, then we need to be responsive to our environment. Yes, we absolutely need to have better performance of our buildings. And Passive House is one of the tools in that box. But we must pay attention to the siting of the buildings, how we orientate them, how you get sun in, in winter and how you keep it out at the height of summer. I mean, I'm already, it's, it's, we're not even, we're just on midday here and I'm already starting to heat up in my west facing living room um, because it's, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any shade. Um, and that's, those are the sorts of things that we really need to be incorporating into any, into any planning for what we do. But at the moment, we're at a point where if you if you add things like that, if you say developers have to do this, they go, this is more expensive, it takes more space, I can't get more profit on this, so it's going to make it harder for me to actually do any development, so don't make me do this because then otherwise I won't do the building. And it's they so hold I was just going to say that's such a funny argument to me because they're going to make so much money out of this no matter what. I mean, they're, they're being given a massive business opportunity. And I mean, to be honest, it's like if, if, if one developer, one construction firm doesn't want to do something, then well, too bad. I mean, there's going to be people lining up to, to take advantage of this. Uh, I mean, I think if, if politics is, uh, is, is, a, is a game of quid pro quo, you know, you give something, you get something in return. I mean, they are getting this opportunity that will fill their pockets very nicely and in return by the way you have to abide by certain standards that that we as as the public uh would prefer that you do since we're going to be living in these houses well this comes back to the neoliberal argument that basically nice things are expensive good design is expensive mm. it doesn't have to be um it's just how you organize space how you orientate space um, but they, you know, there is this strong idea that, well, if we want affordable housing, we have to put up with ugly. Mm. And that's just not true. There's been some, and um, they might have a problematic government at, at, at the centre in the UK, but they have some good councils. And um, there's been some really good council-led um, housing, social housing developments in, in the UK recently that meet high um, environmental and thermal performance standards and provide really nice living spaces for people. Um, we can't just sort of copy paste because we're in a different environment, but there are things that it, it's definitely, it's achievable and we can definitely learn from other people. I think it's it's also worth noting that this argument that, that everything has to be pegged to what uh, the private sector wants. I mean, you know, the, if you want to take that argument to its to its conclusion, I mean, that's just a race to the bottom, and that's exactly what we got with the uh, with the leaky housing crisis. Was basically the, the construction firm said, well, you know, it's a lot. It's going to be a lot better for us if we don't have to abide by this standard. If we don't have to do this, we have to do this. And they said, fine, we'll deregulate all of that. And then what happened? <laughs> we were paying for it down the line. Of course, the construction firms aren't paying for that. 
it's it's the public as always it's the losses are always always socialized yeah and i i think that um that is that is a really good example that the, the leaky home thing and the deregulation of construction and whilst we're not talking about entire deregulation in terms of planning the things that we're deregulating are the things that affect how you live in a space and it's not good enough to say we'll just go down to the park down the road why do you have to have it in your house just go down to the park down the road because some people literally can't you know um there's there's not a lot of awareness of people who are sick people who are disabled people who have small children um people who are caring for someone who's el who's elderly and infirm um people who have um uh mental conditions like alzheimer's you know you can't just have them wandering off down to the park because they need some green space um <laughs> might get lost and it's a reality you know we have to we we can't just say go to the park that's not that's not a accessible solution for everyone so i just on the accessibility argument you know they're also say well if you're concerned about privacy from ground floor apartments you just raise the interior floor level yeah, and then you have to have a set of steps up to that interior floor level because you're never going to get a ramp that's long enough. And, well, now you've made your apartments inaccessible. You know, it's we need to be a little bit more conscious of the ways, of the kinds of decisions we make and how they affect the actual outcomes and how that affects real people. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a lot of this comes back... Um to sort of what you were saying before about who's making these decisions, right? Um, because we can envisage what developers will do because we know their motives. So like if that, it's that sort of capitalism versus democracy frame, I guess, that's like you either have the profit motive as the center point, or you have some form of engagement as the center point. And it seems like um, the versions of that democracy that we're seeing at the moment aren't working. Like you were talking about local boards before, and they have no capacity to do any of this. It's not even, in their job description anymore really and there's what 30 to 40 percent of people turn up to vote and they're all the old homeowners who don't want anything to change um yeah. so it would have to be like a revolution in the way that um that engagement happens would have to be like a fundamental part of this transition right i i would argue that it would be a i don't think it needs I don't think we have to have it. I think it is something that would be good to have and would make a better outcome. But even if we just went, okay, the state and the council are going to build most of the housing, then um, you've got people who are, instead of building it for a profit motor, and you build into what is your brief here? Your brief here is to provide good housing. So they will do a certain amount of public consultation and they will engage with professionals who have knowledge bases to build upon. I do think that the stronger your public engagement is, the better your outcomes are going to be, but you're still going to get better outcomes when it's public-led. Um, I had a conversation with a developer in the UK where he was telling me that his competitor down the road was selling a three-bedroom house for however many hundreds of pounds, hundreds of pounds. 
So he could sell a three-bedroom house for the same price. But if he made it smaller, then it wouldn't be as expensive to build, and therefore he would make more of a profit than his competitor. And I can't think of any other industry where the approach is, I'm going to make a shittier product and sell it at the same price. And that's how I'm going to compete. I don't know of any other industry where that happens, but it does happen in, in housing because we don't have the fundamental choice of saying, yeah, no, thanks, but no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, I won't rent or buy from you. Whereas if we had 40% public housing, then people have another choice. Yeah, it's that, it's that what's good enough kind of baseline, right? Yeah, yeah. You take what you, you, take what you can afford. You take what you can get. Hmm. Yeah, and that's what this comes, comes down to, right, is there's no, there's no baseline for the market. It'll keep pushing uh, things to be cheaper and shittier if it's allowed to. Yeah. So you need some form of, um, yeah, I guess that's just the basic social democracy kind of line, right, is we need some collective form of support as a basis for that. And then it's where do you draw that line? I yeah. 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 And I guess some of the things that I'm identifying as being critical to that baseline in terms of things like sunlight and green space and so on, other people are saying um, hinder development. And I don't see why they should hinder development. We just need to be smarter about it. Um, and perhaps if we... I was having a play around with different um, housing typologies, different forms and different kind of um, different approaches to your kind of height relation to boundary and yard rules and so on. On some typical different sites from around me, getting the dimensions and so on from the geomaps. And one of the things that I identified was that having a lower height in relation to boundary enables you to get ensure that you're going to get when you've got narrow sites and enables you to ensure that you're going to get sun into the neighboring site but if you take away the side yard because just to be clear about this if you have a one meter side yard which is what we have at the moment you're basically saying that's where you build your building if you don't want to fire rate your boundary wall right any closer to the boundary in your fire ratings, you're either going to be a meter off or you're going to be on the boundary. So we've already got something that kind of leads you to have a one meter side yard. If we said um, we want you to build up against your south or your east boundary so that you've got your living space on the northern or western side, and then the next neighbor is doing the same thing. And so you've got better, you've got greater distance between the units. Um, and you've also not got the issue of overlooking because you've got no windows on that wall. So there are some mechanisms that we could introduce into planning if we start from the premise, what are we trying to achieve in housing? But unfortunately, what we're doing um, as a whole is we're going, how many units can we squeeze in? And then we're trying to create planning rules that make as many units as we can squeeze onto a site. Instead of going, what do we want those units to do? How do we want those units to function? What kind of environment do we want out of those units? And if we started from the approach of how do we want our housing to be, 
then we could come up with better planning rules. But because as we were talking earlier about this, this determined split between the public realm and the private realm, we're getting this inability to say, this is what we want to achieve in the private realm. So let's create planning rules that's part of that whole public realm stuff that's going to achieve that. And, you know, one of the, the, the reasons I think we have this split between the, the public realm and the private realm in terms of its relative perceived importance is you go right back to the Greeks and they said, the, the, they were city-states, and they said the, the space of the city, the urban space, the public space, that's men's domain. And the domestic is the women's domain. And so they created this gendered split between these two spaces. And that has percolated through the Roman Empire and then, you know, <laughs> the British Empire. And so we still have this idea that of this, this split between the two spaces with one being in a patriarchal society considered to be more important than the other. And I think we really need to challenge that. We, we, I know most people aren't thinking of it in gendered terms, but that is the origin of it. And we need to see that the two influence each other. If, if one isn't good enough, then the other's going to struggle and, and they do have, have a complementary effect. And there isn't a hard line between them or there shouldn't be. You do get these, you know, the front door of the house opens straight onto the footpath, which is not, people don't feel secure with that. They generally like to have a little bit of what we call defensible space, whether you kind of, you know, you, you come through a gateway into a little courtyard and then there's the door, or you have a veranda space or you have a small yard, you know, you, you have a little bit of defensible space. You don't necessarily need that with apartments, um, particularly if you've got shops on the ground floor, because you come through into an interior space and then to your private apartment. So you've got your defensible space, that interior. But for a townhouse or a house opening straight into the street, it's very confrontational. So people tend to keep that door shut and they keep the, the blinds down on the window that looks onto the street. So you don't get the benefit of passive overlooking for the security of the street that people are talking about. You actually need to be able to give them that sense of, of their protected space. And this is where the, the division between public and private starts to really blur. And you get this, this liminal zone, this, this boundary condition between the two of them that actually has a lot of potential. It's a wonderful thing to be able to sit on your front porch and chat to your neighbors as they go past. Um, one place I was living, we had um, one of my flatmates got chatty with, with the next door neighbor who then for half a year had never come further into the house than the front door, but would sit you know, several evenings a week on the front step with Chris and drink, drink wine with them and that's the kind of thing that you can do when you have that defensible space that space that is sort of yours but sort of public yeah sorry I could talk about public private blurring for a long time so. yeah it's really interesting um we should wrap up it's um, yeah. getting on but I really like some of those examples 
um, you bring up. Those specific examples, I think, are really helpful because, because this design stuff isn't something that most non-design students kind of have in our heads mm. um, all the time, right? I think it's really useful to have those specific examples about boundaries and shifting houses and requirements for these sorts of things. And then that kind of liminal space between public and private, I think, as you said, kind of encapsulates that philosophical distinction and shows that there's more to it than that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so thanks thanks very much for that. Thanks for having me on. Of course, yeah, yeah. And where can people find you if people want to read anything by you or follow your work? You wrote a piece for one of 200 that people can find on yeah. our website. Um, is there anything else you want to leave people um, with? I did write a piece for um, uh, staff back at the last local body elections a couple of years ago talking about social health, about um, that Auckland Council should get back into providing housing. Um but uh, at the moment, um, I mean, they can check out my website, rainstudio.nz, but I <laughs> haven't, um, haven't kept up to date with my blog. So <laughs> That's all good. Thanks, gentlemen. That's been 1200 for another week. Um, find us online, rate us, share us with a friend, do all that good stuff. Um, leave a review so the top review isn't um, mentioning me anymore. That would lower my anxiety slightly. Um, thanks very much. And we'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. Is the lie aspirational? Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism